Cause and Witness. This is Pastor Patrick Hines here at Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. And today I'd like to post um, a program I did yesterday with uh, my brother in Christ, Ryan Kaiser, who's also a seminary student um, that we're uh, overseeing his education here at our church and through LAMP Seminary. And we're going to be reading through Jay Gresham Machen's um, excellent and highly relevant book called Christianity and Liberalism. And we had a great discussion of it yesterday. We had a good time uh, doing that. And Machen was a first-rate uh, scholar. He was really the leader of uh, the Calvinist Christian uh, resistance to the rise of modernism. Um, towards the end of his life, uh, Machen really didn't like the, the label fundamentalist uh, much. Um, he always described himself as a Calvinist. <clears throat> and uh, his book, Christianity and Liberalism, is I've described it before as 120-proof Christianity, and Machen was a, a dear saint, a dear man of God, and so I hope you find uh, this discussion as edifying as it was fun uh, for me and Ryan to do it, and there'll be more of these coming. This is Pastor Patrick Hines today here with uh, one of our seminary students, with Ryan Kaiser, and uh, Ryan's been doing seminary work for how long now? Just a few months? Uh, a little over a year now. It has been over a year? Yes. We've been, we've been doing this for a year? Well, I did uh, I did oh. some time down in North Carolina. Ah, that's right. So okay. I, I took two classes down there before we moved up here. Okay, all right, all right. So I was going to say, man, it, it cannot have been that long. <laughs> we've been meeting on Saturday mornings to do stuff. But yeah. but anyway, so he's one of, one of three. Um, but <clears throat> Ryan has a big heart for the... Um, for the faith and for the, the truth. And um, one of the things I try to do at, at our church here is keep really, really great books dirt cheap so lots of people can buy them. Um, and I have a special heart for seminary students uh, to build, help them build a library. So um, I've made sure that they get really good books in their hands. And one of those books is uh, Christianity and Liberalism. I'm looking at Ryan's copy. It's got all the little sticky tabs all over it. <laughs> so that's good. Did you get all the way through the whole thing? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh I got through this copy once. Mm-hmm. I'm through an audio copy oh, yeah. uh, halfway through. Uh, yeah, this has been one of the most foundational books that yeah. I that I've ever read. Yeah, how, um, how so? How so? Uh, because he he doesn't mince words. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very fair to his opponents, mm-hmm. but really he gets at the heart of Christianity. What is yeah. Christianity? And it's mm-hmm. more than experience. It's more than um, emotionalism. It's more than all these things. It's it's a message. Uh, it's a historical message founded on uh, doctrine, sound mm-hmm. doctrine. And if we lose that, we really lose the Christian faith. And he argues that the whole book. Yeah. Yeah, and this book is, I mean, what, what year was it published? Is it 1924? Is that this was first published? I believe that's correct. I mean, it was, it, I, know, I, I believe it was lectures that eventually were, were submitted for publication. Um, when, when was this first put out? Does it say November 3rd, 1921? 21. The author wow. of the present book delivered before the ruling elders association. Wow. Of, uh, yeah. Okay. So that's three years after world war one ends. Yes. That he, he writes this. So, I mean, you're looking at, I mean, in two years from now, it'll be 2021. So just about a hundred years ago, this is published. And it's, would you say it's relevant to what we're seeing today, Ryan? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but what's incredible about this book, it, 
<laughs> when I started reading it, I had to go back and look at the date. Yeah, yeah. Because it could have been written yesterday. Yes. That, that's what's incredible about it. And mm-hmm. and really, he he had a pulse on what was going on at, in his day, yeah. and he and he could see what was coming so clearly. Yeah. And that's what makes this book so timeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because now what we have is we have all of his issues that have come true, mm-hmm. and then we're seeing the next wave of issues coming through because we've already given up so much. Yeah. Yes. I remember um, years ago, one of the very first series of lectures I listened to from, or actually, I probably shouldn't call them lectures, but it was, a, it was, this was before podcasting. It was when the White Horse Inn first started in the 1990s, and I, I used to listen to the White Horse Inn, and you'll love how I did this. I had a, one of those old um, cassette recorders, and I would set it in front of the speakers on my computer, and I would rec- just push record and let it record. <laughs> And then I would listen to those in my car, and that, that car I still drive, that 97 Saturn, still mm-hmm. has a tape deck in it. Yeah. So I, I used old tapes and recorded those and listened. They did a series on the great debates, and they went through uh, debates between, you know, in, in Scripture between the Judaizers and uh, the Apostle Paul, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They did um, Anselm mm-hmm. and Abelard in the Middle Ages. They did Athanasius and Arius, Pelagius and Augustine. And they did Luther and Erasmus, which was, which was great. And see, and every every time I'd listen to an, another debate, a historical debate, they would like mention a bunch of books that I would have mm-hmm. to go buy. But the last uh, debate they covered in the Great Debate series was the fundamentalist mo- uh, modernist controversy, and they they highlighted Machen versus Harry Emerson Fosdick. And Fosdick was one of the main proponents of of the liberalism that he's responding to in Christianity and liberalism. And of course, they recommended this book, and they said, mm-hmm. you know, this book is is just outstanding and it's great. And so I picked it up, and I remember noticing. This was published in the 1920s, and I kept like like you said, I kept having to go like, wait a second, this is this is not someone that wrote this last year, right? Because what he describes as quote modern liberalism end quote is very similar to the evangelical fundamentalist church I grew up in. Mm-hmm. I mean, he says things like, according to modern liberalism, faith is simply committing your life to Christ. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you go. Okay, I heard that a million times. Yep. So-and-so committed their life to Christ. They committed their life to Christ. And I used to wonder even then, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? Yeah. You hear all this rhetoric that um, religion is bad, but Jesus is good, relationship is good, <laughs> mm-hmm. when Paul clearly talks about a one true religion that yeah, is good. That's right. And it it's that kind of rhetoric that has really done a disservice to the church oh, yes. and has been destructive yeah. to the church. Yeah, people say, I don't want all this doctrine, all this theology, I just want to love Jesus. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, you know, you can't talk about Jesus apart from divine revelation. You can't talk about him apart from propositions in scripture. Um, and so there's no separation mm-hmm. of the two things. And that's another thing, like you already said, and I, I caught some of the phrases that he uses a lot in some of your comments. Mm-hmm. We're talking about real historical facts and events. He right. talks about that a lot in the book. This is this is connected to actual historical events. And just real quick, I remembered um, the White Horse Sin when they discussed this. Uh, one of them, I can't remember who it was. It might have been um, uh, Michael Horton might have pointed out. Um, that a brilliant atheist critic at the time, a fellow named H.L. Mencken, mm-hmm. um, read Christianity and Liberalism and wrote, and wrote an article about it and basically said, any human being with a functioning brain knows that Machen has destroyed his opponents. Absolutely. And even though he's an atheist and he's mm-hmm. looking from the outside like this is a joke anyway, mm-hmm. he also said that he himself was moved by the power intellectual arguments and by how clear and forceful Machen's presentation is of recognizing that the liberalism that he was addressing 
was not another species of Christianity, right. but rather that the, the title of the book says it all Christianity and liberalism, mm-hmm. that the two things are completely incompatible with one yep. another. Yep. And what we have now, uh, his issues, what he was dealing with, was considered liberalism. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now, really, a lot of what he's talking about is considered conservative. That's right. So most yeah. of the most of the churches um, in America, or at least a, a majority of the churches, mm-hmm. have already embraced these things yeah. and have gone on to other liberal mm-hmm. uh, notions and other liberal uh, theologies. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think, too, especially for our time being in the PCA, um, with the rise of, of Revoice and, and the things that took place at the General Assembly with some of the speeches that were made, Um, I think that it's profoundly naive if people look at that and think, well, I'm sure that, you know, they're confessional and they hold to everything else the Bible says except this one thing. The the fact that they had Roman Catholic speakers at their conference demonstrates that's not the case. No. This is connected to an entire matrix of errors. And it's the same thing here with, with Machen. It was never the case that, well, you know, these liberals, they've got some questions about the virgin birth of Christ. Mm-hmm. Or they've got some questions about how we're supposed to understand the, you know, the deity of Christ. No, mm-hmm. this is this is the just the, the camel's nose. Yeah. Um, the sexual stuff and, and all the, the compromises that are going on with that and, and what they're wanting to push for uh, having a place for, you know, quote-unquote gay celibate side B Christianity. That is not by itself. That's going to be connected to a whole host of errors. Yeah. And that's why there's been you know, very little talk about the fact that the ecumenical agenda with Roman Catholicism was front and center mm-hmm. with the whole conference. And it, it has shocked me, even though we included it in our presbytery report, it has shocked me that not more people have pointed that out. Mm-hmm. And, and even, as you said, the ecumenical movements mm-hmm. that are out there, um, their idea is, well, we, at least we have unity in service. If we don't have unity yeah. in doctrine, but mm-hmm. that is destructive to the truth. Yeah. You, you, can't have, you can't sacrifice truth for unity because yeah. if there is no truth, there, there can be no unity. That's right. And the thing that, that's exactly correct, and the thing is if you do make social causes and social justice kind of the thing that unites you and you set aside your doctrinal commitments, your theological grandchildren will be pro-choice. Yes. Your theological grandchildren will believe in gay marriage too. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what happened. The liberals that Machen was facing um, back then, today, um, no longer hold to any of those social causes anymore. <laughs> they don't. They've jettisoned all of them. Because yeah. you, you lose the doctrinal foundation, you're no, you no longer have a basis for uh, morality or, or law or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a package deal. <laughs> you take all of it or none. So, All right, well, that's a, that's a fairly decent intro, I think. I think it's important for people to know, you know, Machen was a, was a, a churchman. He taught at Princeton eventually when the seminary turned liberal. You know, he left and founded Westminster Seminary. And there's been other seminaries that have come out of that. Our Reformed Theological Seminary, the seminary I, I went to in Jackson, Mississippi, is definitely in that stream uh, of old Princeton, uh, having, you know, the confessional commitment. But Machen was eventually thrown out. I mean, he was excommunicated. He was, he was th- tossed out of the denomination for, I can't remember if it was specifically for d- being a disturber of the peace or something like mm-hmm. that. It was something really lame, and he really wasn't even allowed to make a defense of himself. Um, but this book has got so much good discussion fodder in it, so let's go ahead and, and we're just going to read through. This will probably take pardon me, a, a number of, of uh, programs to get through, but it's well worth it. The book is worth its weight in gold, um, and his answers to the problems of, of the time are timeless. 
because we're seeing these same issues now. So why don't you go ahead and read the first uh, paragraph there. Okay. The purpose of this book is not to decide the religious issue of the present day, but merely to present the issue as sharply and clearly as possible in order that the reader may be aided in deciding it for himself. Presenting an issue sharply is indeed by no means a popular business at the present time. There are many who prefer to fight their intellectual battles in what Dr. Francis L. Patton has aptly called a condition of low visibility. Okay, stop there. That's, uh, <laughs> um, has it ever been po- popular business? <laughs> never. It's never been popular business. Yeah, especially in our touchy-feely, you know, sentimental, feminine culture. But I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you'll notice... Uh, <laughs> A lot of the arguments we have against modern-day liberalism, mm-hmm. it's always shrouded in in clouds or yeah. in low visibility. Mm-hmm. You know, no one no one can know what everyone believes and says. So it's just yeah. like, well, we we can't really say everyone's intentions. We just we just know that this is kind of an umbrella thing, right, and, and right. we hear that all the time. And mm-hmm. really, it's just smoke screens. It is clear-cut definitions of terms in religious matters bold-facing of the logical implications of religious views is by many persons regarded as an impious proceeding. Mm. But it's so important, isn't it? it? Is. We have to be precise with our wording. That's right. And I've heard you say, even you know, from the pulpit, mm-hmm. uh, why does language matter? Why do phrases matter? Because the Bible is given the to Bible us. The Bible is given to <laughs> us in words phrases. and phrases. That's right. People say, I mean, during all the John Piper acid that people have thrown in my face for that, you know, one, one of the Reformed Brotherhood guys, well, you just you just don't like his phrasing. You just, just can't get past his phrasing. And I had to say, look, if you phrase the gospel wrong, you are wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, go ahead. Yeah, and, and it's also <laughs> sinful to to treat words that way. That's right. To misrepresent what someone else is saying or to mm-hmm. say something and to be disingenuous. Uh, So, may it not discourage contribution to mission boards? May it not hinder the progress of... Consolidation. Consolidation. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Uh, And produce a poor showing of columns of church statistics. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with such persons, we cannot possibly bring ourselves to agree. Light we may seem at times to be an impertinent intruder, but it is always beneficial in the end. The type of religion with, uh, which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meanings or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. In this the, next sentence, real quick, this next yeah. sentence, is, I used to have this as a signature in one of my emails. Yeah. Go ahead. In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men agreed are apt not merely and not even primarily to current experience, but to certain ancient books, the most recent of which was written some you, 1900 think, years ago. I think the sentence, you, did, you, did you miss a page? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah I missed <laughs> I'm a page. like, you no, started no. speaking in yeah, tongues, I thought man. That, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, let me, let me research Yeah, that. read that, read that um, sentence again. In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. Mm. They, uh, the really important things are the things about which men will fight. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot more that's sense. That's a lot more. But that's absolutely true. Yeah. The things that men are willing to give up quickly yeah. are typically yeah. not the things that are mm-hmm. worth fighting for. And it's, basically today, what are the things that we can agree on? That we should all be nice. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, that the Bible's God's word. Uh, <laughs> that Jesus is cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, it's it's usually stuff that, like you said, are, are things that are the least worth holding. Mm-hmm. The really important things are the things about which men will fight, like uh, the gospel and the law and the gospel. Absolutely. So, yeah. All right, next next paragraph. In the sphere of religion, in particular, 
The present time is a time of conflict. Has, it, has there ever been a, a time when that was not the case? No. <laughs> I mean, seriously, even the whole New Testament is like a most of it's a polemic against false doctrine. Absolutely. Yeah. Gnosticism. Yeah. I mean, there are always darts being fired toward the church. That's right. Different angles mm -hmm. uh, may come in different forms. Yeah. But there's always something that we have to combat. Yes, always. Okay, so he's saying in particular, uh, the present time is a time of conflict. So this is 1921. The great redemptive religion, which has always been known as Christianity, is battling against a totally diverse type of religious belief, which is only the more destructive of the Christian faith because it makes use of traditional Christian terminology. This modern, non-redemptive religion is called modernism or liberalism. Notice he calls it a non-redemptive religion. Mm-hmm. Okay, because what's missing from it is the idea that men are sinful. Right. Uh, I forget, I think it was, um, it might have been Richard, H. Richard Niebuhr, or some, some theologian said that he summarized liberalism with one sentence. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom uh, without grace through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Yeah. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> yeah. Both names are unsatisfactory, modernism and liberal, liberalism. The latter, in particular, liberalism, is question-begging. The movement designated as liberalism is regarded as liberal only by its friends. To its opponents, it seems to involve a narrow ignoring of many relevant facts. And indeed, the movement is so various in its manifestations that one may almost despair of finding any common name which will apply to all its forms. But manifold as are the forms in which the movement appears, the root of the movement is one. The many varieties of modern liberal religion are rooted in naturalism. Mm -hmm. That is, in the denial of any entrance of the creative power of God, as distinguished from the ordinary course of nature, in connection with the origin of Christianity. It's exactly right. Yep. It's exactly right. They're, mm -hmm. they're the anti-supernatural bias of German higher critical scholarship, mm -hmm. which is what gave rise to liberalism. Remember what um, someone said, America is where old German heresies come to die. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, absolutely true. Yeah. So they come here and they, they die here, but they had been picked up and they had made their way into the mainline church at that point through the seminaries. And we see that with all denials. You look at the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ. It, yeah. it always comes from a naturalistic worldview. Mm -hmm. Because if there is no God, of course these things would not be possible. That's right. But if there is a God, mm -hmm. which there is, yeah. the, the God of the Bible, yeah. these things are most certainly possible and right. did happen because he has given testimony. Yeah. And that's why really in all of our dialogues or discussions that we ever have with unbelievers or with atheists, you've got to cut past some some of the rhetoric and get to the underlying worldview issues. Yes. Because if their if their starting point is that there is no God and that uh, all reports of miracles are ipso facto ruled out of out of bounds mm -hmm. from the get go, you can present all the evidence that you want from Scripture. Um, it's not going to make any difference until you've challenged that naturalism. Okay, the word naturalism is here used in a sense somewhat different from its philosophical meaning. In this non-philosophical sense, it describes with fair accuracy the real root of what is called by what may turn out to be a degradation of an originally noble word, liberal religion. Okay. The rise of this modern naturalistic liberalism has not come by chance, <laughs> but has been occasioned by important changes which have recently taken place in the conditions of life. The past 100 years have witnessed the beginning of a new era in human history, which may conceivably be regretted, but certainly cannot be ignored by the most obstinate conservatism. And that's absolutely correct. Yeah. It, it's much regretted now <clears throat> yeah. that, yeah. that uh, we see the fruits. Yep. The change is not something that lies beneath the surface and might be visible only to the discerning eye, 
On the contrary, it forces itself upon the attention of the plain man at a hundred points. Modern inventions and the industrialism that has been built upon them has given us, in many respects, a new world to live in. We can no more remove ourselves from that world than we can escape from the atmosphere that we breathe. He's right. And it's, again, it's strange to think, okay, this is a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a time of, of great technological advancement and everything else. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, think, think about how much the technology has changed from Mason's day in 1921 until 2019 and the things that we have now. And how much of an impact that's had on people's worldviews and mm-hmm. how atheistical and secular people are now. Yeah. Um, it, it's really incredible how technology has united the world. Yeah. You know, it, you have access to so much information now. Yeah. You know, all the Puritans really had to work for their stuff. <laughs> right. You know, they couldn't hop on Google or yeah. go to Puritan Library yeah, and right. download books from the other Puritans. They had yeah. to work hard. Yeah. Now we have such a vast amount of wealth. Yeah, it is, uh, of resources. I think Jonathan Edwards um, only had 300 books in his personal library. Wow. Was it. And yet you think, look at what he accomplished. I know Bunyan, Bunyan's library was even smaller. Mm-hmm. But you're right. They These guys were they were Bible men. But, yeah, the modern technology and the inventions um, ha- have really caused people to have a, quote, a so-called scientific, you know, I just want to have a naturalistic understanding mm-hmm. of everything because naturalistic science has, has given rise to all these inventions, but that comes into the, the church's unbelief. Yes. Yeah. But such changes in the material conditions of life do not stand alone. They have been produced by mighty changes in the human mind. As in their turn, they themselves give rise to further spiritual changes. The industrial world of today has been produced not by blind forces of nature, but by the conscious activity of the human spirit. It has been produced by the achievements of science. The outstanding feature of recent history is an enormous widening of human knowledge, which has gone hand-in-hand with such perfecting of the instrument of investigation that scarcely any limits can be assigned to future progress in the material realm. (laughs) Um, The application of modern scientific methods is almost as broad as the universe in which we live. Though the most palpable achievements are in the sphere of physics and chemistry, the sphere of human life cannot be isolated from the rest. And with the other sciences, there has appeared, for example, a modern science of history, uh, which with psychology and sociology and the like, claims, even if it does not deserve, full equality with its sister sciences. No department of knowledge can maintain its isolation from the modern lust of scientific conquest. Treaties of um, involability though hallowed by all the sanctions of lifelong, or I'm sorry, age-long tradition are uh, being flung ruthlessly to the winds. In such an age, it is obvious that every inheritance from the past must be subject to searching criticism. And as a matter of fact, some convictions of the human race have crumbled to pieces in the test. Indeed, dependence of any institution upon the past is now sometimes even regarded as furnishing a presumption, not in favor of it, but against it. So many convictions have had to be abandoned that men have sometimes come to believe that all convictions must go. Mm-hmm. Yes, isn't that incredible? So 100 years ago, 19, 1910s and then mm-hmm. 20s, people are so fascinated by the progress yes. of science that they think, well, anything from the past, 
um, it's just really not worth much. Right. You know, and the same attitude as today, don't yeah. you think? Yeah, we don't need this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are more sophisticated now than those yeah. sheep herders mm-hmm. or okay. whatever. We hear that. Yeah, we hear that all the time being thrown mm-hmm. against us. How how mentally superior we are to them. Yeah. Which. I don't buy that for a second. I don't either. Um, but there's this notion of uh, we're smarter. We don't need this anymore. We have mm-hmm. science. Science is our god. Yeah, is pretty much what it is. Yeah, uh, and we will allow science to rule the day. Right. So supposedly, but yeah. the findings of science. Yes. Right? If such an attitude be justifiable, then no institution is faced by a stronger hostile presumption than the institution of the Christian religion. For no institution has based itself more squarely upon the authority of a bygone age. And, and that's absolutely correct. Yeah, he's right. we, we have a historical faith. Yes. It's a faith rooted in history. Yeah, and that's why we're always called conservatives, because we believe in something that's fixed. and un- it's not, not only is it unchanging, it is unchangeable. Correct. It will never change. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we are not now inquiring upon such policy is wise or historically justifiable. In any case, the fact itself is plain, that Christianity, during many centuries, has consistently appealed to the truth the truth of its claims, not merely and not even primarily to current experience, mm. but to certain ancient books, yeah. the most recent of which was written some 1900 years ago. So you're already hearing. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for us. Oh, yeah, for us. Uh, so you're already hearing what he's saying. It's not in our experience. Yes. It's something that has been rooted in history yeah. 2,000 years ago. Yeah. If, and yeah, that's right. And that's what the liberals at the time have been pushing really since the, the Enlightenment was was pushed theologically mm-hmm. by Schleiermacher and then that comes over more and more into liberalism. And they, they define religion basically as the feeling of dependence. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it's a famous Schleiermacher quote where he says, Yeah, religion, the, the essence of religion is like the child falling backwards into its mother's arms and being mm-hmm. held close to it. That, that kind of sentimentality, rather than rooted in divine revelation and propositions that are anchored in historical facts, mm-hmm. that, that's what he's trying to differentiate it yeah. from. All, mm-hmm. all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, mm-hmm. all of our yes. actions are rooted yes. in Scripture, yeah. not apart from Scripture, mm-hmm. and not over Scripture. Yes. Like, it, it, and that comes out even in a lot of hymns. A lot, a lot mm-hmm. of people, people will say things like, we need to go back to the good old days when we had the great hymns like, In the Garden. Yeah. And, and you think, that's not a good hymn. <laughs> yeah. that's, like a, that's like a Gnostic manifesto. Mm-hmm. I come to the garden alone mm-hmm. and, you know, and the joy we share as we tarry there is yep. like nothing that anyone's ever known. Now, one of the things that, that old the old reformers used to say is that, if it cannot be said of all Christians, mm-hmm. then it's not real Christian experience. Mm-hmm. So I don't have this Gnostic sort of like inner experience of God that is uniquely mine and is is divorced from divine revelation. My feelings always have to come under the scrutiny. Yeah. My experience comes under the scrutiny. How relevant is that today? Oh, tremendously relevant. Because especially of all the mm-hmm. gay stuff, people are saying, my experience is this, I can't get rid of this mm-hmm. orientation. Your experience is not relevant. Yeah. Anything. And, and on the other side, uh, the charismatic movement that mm-hmm. we see, it's, well, the Spirit says this, right? right? But we know that the Spirit always speaks, one, back to Christ, yes. and always according to the Word. Yeah, They cannot be divorced, so any experience that we have must mm-hmm. be tested. Any feelings that we have yeah. must be tested. That's right. That's right. Uh, it is no wonder that the appeal is being criticized today that that appeal is being criticized today, for the writers of the books in question were no doubt men of their own age, whose outlook upon the material world, judged by modern standards, must have been of the crudest and most elementary kind. Mm. 
Inevitably, the question arises whether the opinions of such men can ever be normative for men of the present day. In other words, whether first century religion can ever stand in company with 20th century science. Yeah. And I, I just want to say, like, one of the, the things that, you know, it, it really came as a really strong conviction, especially after I was done with seminary, um, was just being really committed to six-day creation um, and really just getting rid of every last remain of, you know, I was taught the framework hypothesis when I was in seminary, and the 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 impetus behind that is to kind of safeguard the Bible from being, you know, uh, uh, challenged seriously mm -hmm. by, by science and really have just gotten rid of that altogether. And I, and I believe that the earth is, you know, only about 6,000 years old, give or take a few hundred years. Um, <clears throat> the reason that that's so important um, is because th those two things, creation and evolution, are just as incompatible as Christianity and liberalism. Mm -hmm. They are oil and water. You cannot mix the two together. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything about evolution, the evolutionary worldview is contrary to Christianity. But one of the things that we've talked about a lot in my house with my kids over the years, and we've watched a lot of An Answers to Genesis and Creation Ministries mm -hmm. International and basically every everything out there that's, that's really towing the line about the creation issue, is we've talked about the cumulative degeneration mm -hmm. of animals and genomes and human beings that yeah uh, we we definitely have not gotten smarter uh, human beings are not getting smarter we're not evolving upwards we're devolving because mm -hmm. we're just piling on more and more genetic mistakes and mutations and everything else and one of my kids um, eventually said, do you think that's why people believe in evolution today? <laughs> <laughs> because we're so much dumber. And I, I was kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't know that the idea would have gotten much traction in the first mm -hmm. century. Like, my opinion, Machen was dealing with, yeah, how could, how could anyone that goes to the dentist and has these amazing technological tools and electric lights and everything mm -hmm. and drives cars, I mean, yeah. how, how could they possibly, you know, look back to the first century? But... Now, I mean, I really think they were a lot smarter in the first century than we are today. Because they, they would never have gone for the idea that dirt became life all by itself. And then, yeah. <laughs> so. And the, the premise of, of Christianity and of what Machen is arguing is authority. Yeah. That has been lost today. Yeah. You know, there is no more authority given to Scripture. Yeah. But that really is the basis of, of all these issues that we see now, these liberal... Um, readings or eisegesis that's being read into mm -hmm. scripture, it all comes back to authority. Is it mm -hmm. thus saith the Lord? Yeah. Right? And that was the first lie, right? Yes. Did God really say? Really and you can apply that to everything that we see today. Yeah. You know, did God really say that he created the world in six days? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely he, yes, did. he did. That's what he said and that's mm -hmm. what we believe. But it all comes yeah. back to an authority issue. Man yeah. wants authority. Man wants to be autonomous. Yeah. You know, during the, the new perspective, when the new perspective controversy was really hot, you know, when uh, N.T. Wright was, you know, when he first published uh, what St. Paul really said, that was in 1997, <laughs> and then you had the explosion of all the, the other books, and then, you know, all, some older books that have been written, Paul and Palestinian Judaism by E.P. Sanders, that, that was, you know, a, a book published in the 70s, and all that stuff starts going forward, and I remember thinking to myself, how can these guys read the Apostle Paul and not understand this? Absolutely. You know, there, there was a, there was a, a famous, um, I think it was uh, Christopher Stendhal was a Lutheran um, theologian that responded, or was, or no, no, excuse me, Stendhal was the New Perspective guy, and Stephen Westerholm was the guy that wrote um, Paul, or, or Paul and Paul, or what was it, um, the or I can't remember what it's called, I've got the book over there, but he, he turned a great phrase in there, he said, anyone who thinks that Martin Luther did not understand Galatians needs to take up a career in metallurgy. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you think, you know, and James White, when I, I'm pretty sure it's his book, The God Who Justifies, in the early introduction to that, he made an argument that I just thought was outstanding. It's, it's in one of his books, I can't remember, I'm pretty sure it's The God Who Justifies, but he says basically, sound exegesis, sound biblical exegesis can only be done by those who are committed to biblical inspiration and inerrancy, because if they're not, then that means that they don't see themselves as servants to the text and under the text. If they don't hold to divine inspiration and inerrancy, they're going to be trying to force this to fit something else. And I remember thinking, that is exactly right. That's the problem, is people do not bow to the word of God. They don't see it as something that... Their thoughts, ideas, opinions, experiences, and liver shivers, and everything else has to come under the scrutiny and correction of Scripture. Yes. Yeah. So, do you, do you remember where we were before yeah. I started uh, preaching? <laughs> uh, however, the question it was your. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> That's a long paragraph. All right. However, the question may be answered. It presents a serious problem to the modern church. Attempts are indeed sometimes made uh, to make the answer easier than at first sight it appears to be. Religion, it is said, is so entirely separate from science that the two, rightly defined, cannot possibly come into conflict. This attempt at separation, as it is hoped the following pages may show, is open to objections of the most serious kind. But what must now be observed is that even if the separation is justifiable between religion and science, it cannot be effected without effort. The removal of the problem of religion and science itself constitutes a problem. For rightly or wrongly, religion during the centuries has, as a matter of fact, connected itself with a host of convictions, especially in the sphere of history, which may form the subject of scientific investigation. Just as scientific investigators, on the other hand, have sometimes attached themselves, again, again, rightly or wrongly, to conclusions which impinge upon the innermost domain of philosophy and of religion. For example, if any simple Christian of a hundred years ago, or even of today, were asked what would become of his religion if history should prove indubitably that no man called Jesus ever lived and died in the first century of our era, he would undoubtedly answer that his religion would fall away. By the way, I asked a youth group that question one time. Really? Yeah, I asked the, the youth group at a church. I, I was a youth director for just for the, the one year I was on campus mm-hmm. in Mississippi. Um, would you guys still want to go to church if you knew that Jesus never lived, died, or rose from the dead? And... Out of the 12, 10 of them said they still would. Really? Yeah. 10 of them. <laughs> and the other two, were, the other two were, were sharp enough to recognize, mm-hmm. well, if he didn't live or die or rise from the dead, then everything that we believe is false then. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, man, 10 of them yep. did not understand that. Yep. That we, we're talking about something that is inextricably connected to actual history. Mm-hmm. And what is that passage? What does it say in 1 Corinthians 15, 12? If Christ has not risen? Then uh, we are... Dead in our sins and yes. most to be pitied, I believe, is the yeah, correct most phrase. Most pitiable of all men, and we are found to be false witnesses. Yes. And we are, yeah, your faith is vain. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yet the investigation of events in the first century in Judea, just as much as in Italy or in Greece, belongs to the sphere of scientific history. In other words, our simple Christian, whether rightly or wrongly, whether wisely or unwisely, has, as a matter of fact, connected his religion in a way that to him seems indissoluble with convictions about which science also has a right to speak. You know, and that's what we've always said. Yes. It's open to investigation. Look Mm -hmm. at the eyewitness accounts. Sure. Look at what the Bible says. Look Mm -hmm. at what it says about what happened to Jesus and the people that saw him after he rose from the dead. Mm -hmm. it 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 is, in principle, falsifiable. 
right? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we don't believe that it's going to be falsified. Correct. <laughs> but in principle, it's falsifiable. Mm-hmm. It's actually testable. That's one of the things that makes the, the faith unique, mm-hmm. is that it's connected to those historical events, inextricably Correct. connected to them. Correct. So, if then those convictions, ostensibly religious, which belong to the sphere of science, are not really religious at all, the demonstration of that fact it's, is itself no trifling task. Even if the problem of science and religion reduces itself to the problem of disentangling religion from pseudoscientific accretions, the seriousness of the problem is not thereby diminished. From every point of view, therefore, the problem in question is the most serious concern of the church. What is the relation between Christianity and modern culture? May Christianity be maintained in a scientific age? That is one of the most crucial questions mm-hmm. that, that uh, is coming against the church today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing, that, as we said, this was written in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. How relevant is this? Yeah. The fact that you know, we are told we, we don't need you know, the religion of these ancient people. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't need these things. Mm-hmm. We're much better than, than, we, than they were. Right, right. Um, it is this problem which modern liberalism attempts to solve. Admitting that that scientific objections may arise against the particularities of the Christian religion, against the Christian doctrines of the person of Christ, and of redemption through his death and resurrection, the liberal theologian seeks to rescue certain of the general principles of religion, of which these particularities are thought to be more temporary symbols, Mm. and these general principles he regards as constituting the essence of Christianity. It may well be questioned, however, whether this method of defense will really prove to be efficacious. For after the apologist has abandoned his outer defenses to the enemy and withdrawn into some inner citadel, he will probably discover that the enemy pursues him even there. Modern materialism, especially in the realm of psychology, is not content with occupying the lower quarters of the Christian city, but pushes its way into all the higher reaches of life. It is just as much opposed to the philosophical idealism of the liberal preacher as to the biblical doctrines that the liberal preacher has abandoned in the interests of peace. <laughs> See what, the, what he's saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the liberals wanted the whole enchilada. You can't even have Christian experience. So we're going to attack not only the historical foundations mm-hmm. and, and the divine inspiration of Scripture and the miracles of the Bible and the historical Jesus. We're also going to attack your experiences as being, you know, psychological wish fulfillment and everything else. Yes. So the, but what he's saying is that their attempt to defend the faith by abandoning history and saying it's just about me and my personal relationship with Jesus and my personal experience, he's saying they're not going to be content with that either. They will not be. Yeah. And that was asked of William Lane Craig, if, yeah. if you recall yeah. recently. Um, as you know, he, he holds that uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is all... Um, it's not narrative. It's poetic. Wow! But really, all of it, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Well, wow. one one through one through nine or one through eleven. Okay, yeah, uh, up all until the, the Tower of Babel, all the way through the Tower of Babel. Yes. Okay, so yes. that's one through eleven. That's yeah. All so of it. he was wow, questioned. So he was questioned. Well, if if you take that as being poetic, mm-hmm. where do you stop? Yeah. Well, why why not the rest of the Old Testament? Why not the New Testament? Why not the resurrection of Jesus? Couldn't that be poetic? Right. Or just be a metaphor for something else. Yes. And there is no answer to that. You can't say anything. Yeah. It's just really at that point you just have to be arbitrary and say, well, because I believe. Yeah. 
this isn't poetry. That's all you can do. It's totally arbitrary. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I actually have been working through Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology again, just kind of my personal devotions. He is great. I just love that guy. Because mm-hmm. he has a whole section um, defending the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. And I actually did a whole sermon on that, like looking at Christ's view of Genesis 1 through 11. Mm-hmm. Because he seemingly, purposefully, focuses in on the, the events that are the most accursed to the modern mind mm-hmm. and and sees them all as historical and the thing is if you look at genesis 1 through 11 as poetic and not necessarily historical so the first adam did, did he live and exist why should we believe in the second adam then why should we believe in the last adam then right. why isn't he a poetical anti-type mm-hmm. um to a to a non-existent thing mm-hmm. see you can't you can't give up that kind of ground to the secularist just because he has a, a problem with the supernatural Right. I mean, yeah, you just can't do that. And, and even the attempt to pull the first Adam away from the second. Mm-hmm. You say the first Adam didn't really exist, so you don't have original sin. Right. Uh, how can how can you accept yeah. uh, the righteousness of Christ? Yes. You can't because those two are compared. That's right. You can't have one without the mm-hmm. other. But, of course, natural man doesn't want the sin part, but right. will take the grace, yeah. of course. That's why it's, it's almost indescribable mm-hmm. to think about how much damage has been done by the various other interpretations of Genesis chapter 1. Mm-hmm. In the name of apologetics, yes. these other interpretations have been embraced. And by giving that ground to the secularists, we cannot give history to the secularism. No. Because the Bible starts at the very beginning and goes to the very last day of history. It is the story of the, of the history of the whole universe. Mm-hmm. Just because the prevailing ideas of the time um, have, have taken control of the, the modern masses, mm-hmm. that is a ship that is doomed to sink. It, it will sow the seeds of its own destruction. And we have to hold fast to the, to the authority of Scripture on that, mm-hmm. especially in those areas where it's being compromised the most. And that's, so. that's where we should expect an attack. That's Genesis right. 1-1, mm-hmm. authority. In the beginning, <laughs> yeah. God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. That's where we're going to attack. It's, yeah. it's at the beginning. Well, there's no mm-hmm. authority here. No, there is authority. Yeah, that's right. And Jason Lyle's got an excellent lecture. It's, uh, it's on YouTube, and it's, I think it's also on Sermon Audio mm-hmm. uh, called pro- pro- Big Problems with the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, no, you, you, could, you could hold to Big Bang <clears throat> cosmology mm-hmm. um, and still believe you know, that that's just the, the way that God created it. And he points out you know, scientifically, him being an astrophysicist, that there are, there, there's really almost nothing in common between the idea of the Big Bang um, and, the, and the creation of the universe as described in Genesis. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the order of everything is wrong. Correct. Because the Bible puts the formation of the earth prior to the formation of the sun. Yes, okay? it does. I remember thinking, you know, when I studied, was studying Genesis, one of the commentaries that I read was uh, Henry Morris's um, The Genesis Record, which is really good. It's a really good kind of scientific mm-hmm. commentary. And I didn't agree with, with everything he said as far as some of his theology, but on those early issues, I mean, he brings out so many great points. There, there are no points of similarity between the way that God created. It's almost like God created on purpose mm-hmm. so that there's no way of harmonizing a, a naturalist, materialist, evolutionary understanding of, of the origin of, of the universe, the sun, the earth, and all forms of life, and what the Bible says about it. They are as incompatible as oil and water are. Correct. Sure. So. And, and it, it, once again, to continue, to, and I expect we'll say this many, many times, mm-hmm. that when we sit down to read Scripture, how are we sitting down to read it? Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Are, are we mm-hmm. examining it? Are we putting God on trial? And we're looking out... <laughs> around his creation and charging him with 
uh, lying to us or being false with us, or do we come to it in submission? I mean, he is the only one who was there, right? That's right. He's the only eyewitness of <laughs> yeah. it. That's right. Yeah. What, what is this passage? It's cited by, yeah, listen to this from Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah. Verse, uh, chapter 66, verse 2 says, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Mm-hmm. He who opens this book and does not hear the voice of the Creator, um, that supersedes, I don't care how many PhDs or whatever people have after their name, you bow to the authority of the Word of God, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what people may say at the time. It, it, g- give them enough time, they'll eventually start seeing uh, that things are not as they seem. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a, a, I just want to put another plug in for a good book. Evolution's Achilles Heels is, is worth its weight in gold. The DVD, I've watched that DVD at least ten times, and the book is outstanding. Because what the, what the book does is it goes through all of the hard sciences that have developed since the time of Darwin. Many people don't realize that Darwin knew nothing about genetics. No, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that science hadn't even started yet. The people weren't even thinking about things like that yet. Uh, the fossil record, we, we did not know much of anything about fossils. Um, the idea of, of radioisotopes and, and that, all that kind of stuff. And all those, there's eight different scientific disciplines that they go through um, and point out how what we know to be true in all these areas now really mitigates against mm-hmm. um, the, the theory of evolution. Mm-hmm. What they thought they would find has not been found. Um, genetic mutations do not add information to genomes. And in fact, the, the idea of genetic entropy, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that everything is just getting worse and worse and worse, and you ha- it really looks like at one time there was a, a very solid pool of genetic information that has slowly deteriorated over time. That is a fact. That's just a, a scientific fact. How does that fit with right. the idea that things started simple and got more complicated? Well, right. no one's ever seen any, any kind of additions of new genetic information. Sometimes things are useful because they get broken, but that's yes. not new information. Right. And that, that book is just fascinating because it really shows you that the more we understand the hard sciences, the more these ideas are, are absolutely false. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so, yeah. and not to get too presuppositional on you, but uh, <laughs> I'll go e- e- even science has to be based on the Christian religion, exactly. because mm-hmm. you can't have uniformity of nature. Who knows yeah. that tomorrow will be like the past? Mm-hmm. And that I think it was Bonson who argued that uh, he could prove the Christian faith with a, uh, a tube of toothpaste. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah um, <laughs> toothpaste that you know you'd squirt it and you expect uh-huh. it to come out. Yeah. The only way you can do that. Mm-hmm. As if there is uniformity of nature. That's right. Who who knows if you you know you squeeze it and an elephant pop out That's or right. a weasel or whatever mm-hmm. you know it's just mm-hmm. ridiculous. That's right. But really, apart from the Christian faith, you cannot have that worldview. Yeah, you can't hold to it consistently. Yeah, yeah. and that's that's one thing that a lot of um, philosophers that are not Christians have pointed out for centuries mm-hmm. um, that the the attempt to build up human knowledge has failed miserably. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you, you really, <clears throat> at the end of the day, every form of epistemology, whether it's uh, uh, empir- strict empiricism or strict um, uh, rationalism and every, every variation in between, they're always completely and totally self-defeating. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, um, men like Bertrand Russell, who really did believe at the outset of his life that he could overcome the skepticism of, of David Hume and, and some of the Enlightenment thinkers. He really thought he'd be able to overcome yeah. it, but reluctantly, at the end of his life, I mean, he, he had to admit, 
most of what passes for knowledge is open to reasonable doubt. And like you just said, we don't know that the future will resemble its past, mm-hmm. or will resemble the past in terms of its law-like characteristics. We don't know that, and mm. there's no way of proving it. Correct. And I remember thinking, reading his little book, Problems in Philosophy, just thinking, do you, does anyone realize what this man just said? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's basically saying that when it comes to the most foundational principle of doing science, that the idea, the idea that the laws of chem- chemistry, matter, physics, and all that stuff is going to carry on into the future, that at best, all we can do is be arbitrary in assuming yes. it. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, you know, he, he had the little Sunday school child that raises their hand, and, you know, I, I know why the future will, will resemble the past, because mm-hmm. God governs it by uh, his providence. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he said, seed time and harvest will never cease until the end of time. Right. And it's also part of man being able to subdue the created order. But you're exactly right. The science, science as it developed after the Reformation uh, was a distinctly Christian way mm-hmm. of looking at things. Yes. It really was. And people have, you know, I remember being asked questions about, like, by my kids, why are people in India so poor? Why why is that nation, like, just so devastated? I said, it's because of its religion. Mm-hmm. I said, kids, it's not because they're not smart people. They are smart. Mm-hmm. I've worked with Indian contractors when I was a computer programmer. They're some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. It's their religion. Mm-hmm. Their religious beliefs about their, their Hinduism doesn't believe the universe even exists. Yeah. So why, why would you study it mm-hmm. and try to, to subdue it and take dominion over it if you don't even think it's there? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not that. It's their worldview is wrong. Sure. It's the Christian doctrine of creation and seeing man as a dominion taker, as, mm-hmm. as being charged by God to be fruitful and multiply, which is why we have children. We, yes. we love, love yes. our children. <laughs> yes. you know, that's why all this, this sexual revolution stuff, you know, I, I tell my kids all the time, what, what is going to be the legacy of all this sexual mm-hmm. revolution? Same thing it always is. Yep. Death. Death. They have no descendants. They hate children. They don't want anything to. It's all about sexual narcissism. Instead of you know the, let me ask you. You have one child. Um, this has that been pretty tough so far? Does it take a lot of energy and time? It takes energy. Are you able to read time. as much as you used to? Not as much. No. <laughs> well, try it. Try it with ten sometime, my man. Yeah. You look. You look at atheism. All they can do apart from the Christian faith is to be arbitrary. What is yeah. life? Hmm. Right, we we look at that. It's just arbitrary. Well, right. you know, a child in the womb—that's not life. Yeah. Um, survival of the fittest, I guess. You know, the people who survive—that's uh, that is a human being. Yeah. Uh, who knows when you get old? Maybe by the time I'm seventy or eighty, I won't be considered a human anymore. Right. But it's reduced to arbitrariness, yes. and it's really the Romans' one effect that they they have become futile in their thinking. Yes. They can no longer reason, right. even though they can't completely leave uh, the Christian ground, or mm-hmm. I, I would suspect uh, insanity would would occur. Yeah, you would yeah. just you would lose all thought. And, yeah, but it cannot cannot depart. That's right, and that's what the scriptures even even tell the world those things. Like mm-hmm. I think of Psalm thirty four twenty one: "Evil shall slay the wicked." Yes, like God God doesn't have to act in judgment. He doesn't have to rain fire and brimstone. Just let the evil do their thing, and mm-hmm. they'll die. Yep. I mean, even even that generation that lived in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis eighteen and nineteen. Um, they would have been dead in a generation anyway because they hate they hated life <laughs> yeah. and they were perverts. Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. they, they don't have kids. They they hate all of that. Right. Um, and also Proverbs eight thirty six, the last verse of Proverbs eight, where you have wisdom speaking the whole chapter, mm-hmm. and it simply summarizes at the end all those who hate me, all those who hate God's wisdom, love death. Mm-hmm. So that's what they all they all do. The, the denial of God's existence, man being God's image. 
um, and therefore being precious in and of himself. That's why we, we love all unborn human life, and we, we seek to advocate for the rights of the unborn and protect them. And we also, we love children, we embrace them. We have children. You know, this church is crawling with children. Yes. It's unbelievable. Yes. I mean, seriously, it's, how many, we have like 55 covenant children. Yeah, here. It's, it's incredible. It is amazing. Yeah. Every, I always tell people not to walk backwards because you're going to trip over someone's that, kids. That's absolutely <laughs> true. But, but all these ideas, uh, human value, human dignity, yeah. all of these things, strictly and explicitly Christian. Yes, that's right. Distinctively and strictly Christian. That's right. Very good. Okay, let me uh, see if I can. Hang on, this is where I left off. Mere concessiveness, yeah, therefore will never succeed in avoiding the intellectual conflict. That's right. So the modernists, by conceding history, they didn't get rid of the conflict because the atheists won it all. They didn't even want your religious experiences either. In the intellectual battle of the present day, there can be no peace without victory. One side or the other must win. Must win. He's right. He's exactly right. Absolutely correct. (laughs) As a matter of fact, however, it may appear that, uh, that the figure... With uh, which has just been uh, used is altogether misleading. It may appear that what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning to the enemy one Christian doctrine after another is not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to belong in a distinct category. And he's absolutely he correct. You, you start giving away Christianity, you don't have Christianity. That's right. One of my... Uh, favorite pastors, Joe Moorcraft, always mm. says, Christianity blended is Christianity prostituted. That's great. It He's ceases good. to be Christianity. Yeah, that's so, a great So in, any concessions of the Christian mm-hmm. faith, it, it slips and slips, and it, it does not become retain its Christianity. Yeah, it becomes in a distinct category. That, that's what he's he's setting it up. That's what liberalism is. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it may appear further that the fears of the modern man as to Christianity were entirely ungrounded, and that in abandoning the embattled walls of the city of God, he has fled in needless panic into the open plains of a vague natural religion, only to fall an easy victim to the enemy Whoever lies in ambush there. Yeah. Yep. You're, you're like a city with no walls. City just, with no walls. You're just vulnerable to everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Two lines of criticism, then, are possible with respect to the liberal attempt at reconciling science with Christianity. Modern liberalism may be criticized, one, on the ground that it is unchristian. <laughs> he doesn't mince any words, no. does he? It's, he's, I mean, imagine how offensive this was to, I mean, you're talking about a denomination that had, like, what... Probably, probably even back then, like 11,000 congregations. Yes. He's telling them that the majority of them are not even Christians. Yes. Yeah. And two, on the ground that it is unscientific. Mm-hmm. We shall concern ourselves here chiefly with the former line of criticism, that it's unchristian. We shall be interested in showing that despite the liberal use of traditional phraseology, modern liberalism not only is a different religion from Christianity, but belongs in a totally different class of religions. You know, I remember, uh, I think it was um, Robert Godfrey uh, on the White Horse Inn years ago said that, yeah, when we were in seminary, um, we were forced to read Friedrich Schleiermacher's sermons, or sections of them would be read to us out loud, and we were, we were tr- told to try to guess who the preacher was, and it sounded so Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, he talked about the cross and the resurrection, mm-hmm. and yet every one of those terms have been radically redefined. You know? Every one of them. Yeah. And it is sufficient for those men who teach that way. If you merely put on the sheep's clothing, you, you yeah. don't have to believe what, 
Well, Christianity mm-hmm. teaches if you if you look Christian, if you accept just enough, mm-hmm. that's fine. Yeah, setting making the bar as low as possible, as low as just possible, as few things as possible. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say that though? We really want to be maximalist in our understanding of scripture, Absolutely. not minimalist. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I was going to say something else. Uh, I will well, come to me later. <laughs> but in showing that the liberal attempt at rescuing Christianity is false, we are not showing that there is no way of rescuing Christianity at all. On the contrary, it may appear incidentally, even in the present little book, that it is not the Christianity of the New Testament which is in conflict with science, but the supposed Christianity of the modern liberal church, and that the real city of God and that city alone has defenses which are capable of warding off the assaults of modern unbelief. Mm-hmm. Right. Even the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Yeah. We, all we need to do is stand on the authority of Scripture and defend what God's Word says. We, we have everything that we need right, right there. However, our immediate concern is with the other side of the problem. Our principal concern just now is to show that the liberal attempt at reconciling Christianity with modern science has really relinquished everything distinctive of Christianity, so that what remains is, in essentials, only that same indefinite type of religious aspiration which was in the world before Christianity came upon the scene. You see what he's saying? Mm-hmm. He's saying they've reduced it to just generic religiosity. Yes. You know, I just have a religious, you know, experience of some kind. Yeah. Gosh. In trying to remove from Christianity everything that could possibly be objected to in the name of science, in trying to bribe off the enemy by those concessions which the enemy most desires, the apologist has really abandoned what he started out to defend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Correct. That's why this book is so timeless. It's, mm-hmm. This is 120 proof mm-hmm. Christianity. I mean, it really is. Here, as in many other departments of life, it appears that the things that are sometimes thought to be hardest to defend are also the things that are the most worth defending. That's absolutely true. That's exactly right. Absolutely true. Biblical creation, the virgin birth of Christ. I mean, think, think about the things that he was forced to defend. Mm-hmm. The deity of Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the not modern liberals did not want to believe Jesus really was the incarnation of God the Son. And mm-hmm. they just didn't want to believe that. Mm-hmm. The virgin birth, um, the substitutionary atonement, the divine inspiration of scripture. That's right. Those are the things that are, that are most worth defending, for sure. Absolutely. So. Uh, in maintaining that liberalism in the modern church represents a return to an unchristian and sub-Christian form of the religious life, we are particularly anxious not to be misunderstood. Unchristian, in such a connection, is sometimes taken as a term of opprobrium. Opprobrium. No, didn't know that one. Uh, We do not mean it at all as such. Socrates was not a Christian. Neither was Goeth. Geta, is how you say it. Oh, sorry, Geta. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't taken the history of philosophy yet, have you? I have not. No, 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 no. (laughs) You have to learn who all Uh, these people are. (laughs) Yet we share to the full the respect with which their names are regarded. Mm. They tower immeasurably above the common run of men. If he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than they, he is certainly greater, not by any inherent superiority, but by virtue of an undeserved privilege, which ought to make him humble rather than contemptuous. Hmm. Right, so we're, we're not denying that there are smart people, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but we know why, right? Yes. Why they are smart, because they have been gifted by God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's right. Socrates and other you know religious leaders um, were not Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we certainly r- regard them as being you know intelligent mm-hmm. men, and they towered above the common men, um, and so on and so forth. 
but that's not we're not just saying we just have a we have a guy that's like a, a sage that we we follow or right, whatever. it's right. a very different claim such considerations however should not be allowed to obscure the vital importance of the question at issue if a condition could be conceived in which all the preaching of the church should be controlled by the liberalism which in many quarters has already become preponderant then we believe christianity would at last have perished from the earth and the gospel would have sounded forth for the last time can you see why this is so offensive to the liberals that oh, would have yes. read this? Yes. Okay. If so, it follows that the inquiry with which we are now concerned is immeasurably the most important of all those with which the church has to deal. Vastly more important than all questions with regard to methods of preaching is the root question as to what it is that shall be preached. Yeah, and that is, that is so vital. Yeah. Because we can't get to preaching until we know the root, right? That's right. The root, thus saith the Lord. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. Yeah. When we stand up, we say, this is the word of God. Yeah. This is what he says. Mm-hmm. This is not my vain speculation or opinions. That's right. This is the word. We exegete yeah. what he says. Yeah, his divinely given explanation of the redemptive historical events that actually took place. I personally, I mean, I know everyone's wired differently, and, and God makes preachers that are that are different. Some, some are much more soft-spoken, but I can't be anything other than passionate. When you think about the fact that Jesus is alive right now, that he rose from the dead, and that the whole of our salvation has been accomplished perfectly and with nothing left in my hands, I don't know how you can get up in the pulpit and talk about that without some pathos, and I don't know how you can listen to people denying it or chipping away at its foundations mm-hmm. without having a passionate response. I don't understand that, and I pray that I never do. I pray I never do understand that. Yeah, uh, I never so, want that either. Yeah, and I I know you're, you already are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, many, no doubt, will turn to uh, in impatience from the inquiry. All those, namely, who have settled the question in such a way that they cannot even conceive of its being up, uh, reopened. Such, uh, for example, are the pietists, of whom there are still many. What, they say, is the need of argument in defense of the Bible? Is it not the word of God, and does it not carry with it an immediate certitude of its truth which could only be obscured by defense? If science comes into contradiction with the Bible, so much the worse for science. Uh, For these persons we have the highest respect, for we believe that they are right in the main point, right? so they are correct. Um, They have arrived by a direct and easy road at a conviction which for other men is attained only through intellectual struggle. But we cannot reasonably expect them to be interested in what we have to say. Yeah, and that's that's an important theological question, the... the, um the rightness of doing apologetics. Mm-hmm. You know, I know I, I've learned from reading uh, Bonson and Van Til and Gordon Clark, Clark and others that men as great as Abraham Kuyper <clears throat> actually thought that apologetics was a waste of time. Really? Did you know that? Yeah. I did not know Kuyper, that. Kuyper thought it, did, <clears throat> it always fails to yield results because he did understand the presuppositional conflict. He said mm-hmm. they have, there's two different ways of science. I mean, they, they don't even see everything that the one side that unbelief sees tries to cancel out everything that the other side sees. So, oh, okay. the, so apologetics is, is really just a waste of time. Hmm. But we don't believe that because no. we, know, we know that it's a, it's a biblical injunction. And you see the apostles do, do it constantly. Hmm. Paul would stand up and make his apologia, his defense. And, and, he, and he argued for it. They reasoned from Scripture with people, hmm. that kind of thing. So. Okay, yeah, but uh, the pietists who just basically say we don't want to engage in that because we just, you know, that, that's kind of an easy way out, but that's not at all what we would advocate. Okay, let's, let's read one more, one more paragraph and we'll, we'll try to stop it. Okay. 
Another class of uninterested persons is much more numerous. It consists of those who have definitely settled the question in the opposite way. By them, this little book, if it ever comes into their hands, will soon be flung aside as only another attempt at defense of a position already hopelessly lost. There are still individuals, they will say, who believe that the earth is flat. There are also individuals who defend the Christianity of the church. Miracles and atonement and all. In either case, it will be said, the phenomenon is interesting as a curious example of arrested development, but it's nothing more. <laughs> yeah, so that would be like H.L. Mencken who read, who read this and mm -hmm. wrote, wrote a, a review of it. So, yeah, Machen understood, you know, his audience and who he was going to be reading or who was going to be reading his book and everything like that. But what's really great, though, is when, like, when you get past the introduction of just kind of what's at stake here, which is, has already given us plenty to talk about, as he gets into each of the specific doctrines, like, look, look at what are the chapter titles? It's like, doesn't it start with the Bible? The and doctrine. Then, okay, doctrine. Uh, God yeah. and man, the Bible, Christ, right. Salvation. salvation. Yeah. And the church, and, the church. and mm -hmm. all of these things are at the core mm -hmm. of what we profess to be true. That's right. Really, the loss of any of them. Yeah. You can't. What is Christianity without doctrine? Yeah. Uh, Christianity without Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, without the Bible. Yeah. It, it's it's not Christianity, as as he said, it's unchristian. Yeah. It's it's anti-Christian. Anti-Christian. Yeah. It's if, if if we embrace that, then then the last trumpet of the gospel has been heard it's, it's going to be yeah. gone and the reason we're passionate about these things the reason we argue about these things the reason he wrote this book mm -hmm. simple because we love God yeah. we love his truth mm -hmm. we're passionate about his truth yeah. we, we believe the gospel mm -hmm. that it will go forth Yes. To all nations, yes. right? he will subdue all people. Mm -hmm. Under all will be subjected and be placed under his feet. We believe that to be true. That's right, and that's why these are these are things that are worth defending and they're worth dying for too, and Absolutely. they're worth paying whatever price we have to pay to to defend and hold to these things. Um, because you and I, as, as Christian men, um, would look at our own lives and and probably <clears throat> remember uh, the days when we weren't converted. Um, and we think about how much it means to us, how important it is to us that the God of heaven and earth would intervene in our lives. We don't, you and I don't rejoice in our religious experiences. Although there's times I'm moved to tears by the hymns. Yeah. There's times that I, the chills go down my spine and everything else. But I know those are effects of God's anchored truth that never changes. Right. Yes. Cause some days I, I feel spiritually cold and there's, mm -hmm. there's depression and there's issues going on with, with my kids and there's things that are, that are really troubling me. Um, but there's other times that experiences are very, very high. But the thing that that's always that never changes is God and His truth, and the doctrines He's taught us. Yeah, to to live by experience, to live by your feelings, is to be tossed to and fro. Amen. Yeah, because that's right. tomorrow I may not feel saved. You know, yeah. I, I may I may sin so wickedly tomorrow that I know not uh, that I'm not deserving of such a great salvation. Mm -hmm. If it's just based on feeling, there's no anchor. That's there right. can never be an anchor. Yeah, and that's really what this is, is liberalism was really the, the attempt to free people from uh, being anchored to that which is fixed and unchanging. The historical events themselves are fixed and unchanging. God's divine revelation, the word of God, is fixed and unchanging. So really, there, there is an impetus in Christianity that we have to be conservatives in the, in the sense that we conserve what never changes. Correct. So, and that's and that's what our culture doesn't like today. For and, sure. and what he speaks, what he says about something, is what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, he created yeah. six days. You know, six day creationism about mm -hmm. human sexuality. Yes. What he says is what's true, not how we feel. Yeah. Um, 
on uh, the murder of babies. All yeah. these things mm-hmm. is based on the God of the Bible, yeah. his revealed truth. Yeah. And the thing is, um, the thing that we can rejoice in and take comfort in too, the thing that I think about a lot is that passage in John 6, 44 and 45. He, said, he tells the, the huge crowd that came across the Sea of Galilee wanting more free food. He tells them, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, as it is written, and they shall all be taught by God. Yes. Remember thinking, for the true believer, the true Christian, um, they're taught by God how to hate their sin and how to put it to death and how to to stay at war with it. They're not going to want to make concessions uh, to various types of sin for which Jesus bled and died on a cross to set them free. Um, And that's what's so upsetting to me is I, I know... In my life, even now, as as someone who's been a Christian for over two decades, um, that there's still a lot wrong with me. Yes. <laughs> there's still there's much work to be done mm-hmm. um, in putting sin to death and in cutting things off and plugging them out and making and, and taking every precaution to live a, a holy and godly life. Especially yeah. with so many eyes, you know, looking at you. Especially if you're a minister, sure. and you know, I'm married. I have a big family. Um, I I have got a lot that, that's riding on my walk with God, mm-hmm. um, and so. I'm always looking to him to help me. I don't want to compromise on, on holiness. I want to be godly. And yet I still fail. I yeah. still sin. But the thing that, that's true of a Christian, like you said, is they listen to what scripture says and they bring their experiences into subjection to it. Mm-hmm. You know, There was a time when I was 18, when, I, when it really first God got a hold of me, I used to think it's not fair that God puts these raging hormones in us and expects us to be <laughs> perfectly chaste. Yeah. I mean, I went to a secular college with 23,000 students, mm-hmm. and the girls there didn't exactly dress modestly. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, I remember thinking, God, what is up with that? You know, why Why would you give us these desires? We can't even, we're not allowed to even think about them. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, once you get married and, and that part of your life, you know, comes to fruition, you understand it more then. Yes. But that's just an example of how, well, things might not make sense to you, but you just live by faith. You bow to the, to the word of God, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. That's what we are, we're all called to do. Yeah. So, okay, good, good stuff there with, with Machen, uh, Ryan. This, it always edifies my soul to, to sit and talk. I know we do yes. our, our, our Saturday morning stuff with your seminary work, and we have to, like, I have to make sure we don't just spend the rest of the day <laughs> yes. doing, talking theology. Yeah. And we both um, have family. All of us have families to get yeah, back to. So. That's right. Yeah. So it's good It's good that we can do that. But I really appreciate you, and um, I'm looking forward to plowing through more of Machen. So, all yes. right. All, all right. right. Take care, my brother. You too. Thanks. Yep. yep. This is Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church, located at 108 Bridwell Heights Road in Kingsport, Tennessee. And you've been listening to the Protestant Witness Podcast. Please feel free to join us for worship any Sunday morning at 11 a.m. sharp, where we open the Word of God together, sing His praises, and rejoice in the gospel of our risen Lord. You can find us on the web at www.bridwellheightspca.org. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.